I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. It's a real privilege and honor to be with you again. It's been a few years. But I want to bring us some foundational truths uh, this evening that help us in every area of our lives. In fact, if we don't have these foundational truths in place, this is a thread that you could pull on and unravel the whole of Scripture. So I want to read to you verses 7 through 9. And I've entitled this evening, Every Word Counts. And really what we're trying to understand is that Scripture is entirely sufficient. Entirely sufficient. Hear the word of God. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Amen. I see some uh, children here this, this evening. I wonder if any of them have ever heard the story of the young Welsh girl, Mary Jones, and her Bible. It's a wonderful story. She was born in the year 1784, all the way over the Atlantic Ocean, on the little bit of the United Kingdom that sticks out west in the Welsh valleys, in the hills there. She was nine years old when she started saving all the money that she could, one penny at a time. She wanted to buy a Bible of her own in the Welsh language, and she worked hard. Same time, she started to learn to read and write so that when she eventually managed to own a Bible, she could understand it. She saved for six years. Then when she was 15, she walked over the Welsh hills towards Bala and met up with a man called Pastor Thomas Charles. But he didn't have any Bibles to spare. And she was distraught. She was heartbroken. But before she returned home, another 26 miles, barefoot, he managed to find a copy of the Bible to give to this young lady. And a little time later, Thomas Charles used this as an illustration when he was speaking to a group of ministers there in Wales. He told them Mary's story, her determination to have the Word of God in her own hands, in her own language. And that group of men decided they needed to produce a Bible in Welsh that was affordable, enough for normal people to be able to buy and read for themselves. And at the end of the meeting, one man stood up and said, if we are doing this for Wales, why not the rest of the world? And that was the beginning of what we know today as Bible societies. Still find them in many different countries. God used the determination of a little girl who understood the value of the Bible. And that started something so much bigger and has had a huge impact. Perhaps you've seen some of those videos where uh, a group of missionaries has finally translated uh, portions of the Bible into a, a native tongue for the first time. And they receive it in their hands and it's handed out to the, the people there, the rejoicing and, and the joy that, that you see. It's a treasured possession. Maybe you've heard, read or heard about the work of William Carey in India or other famous Bible translators or even further back. And maybe you've asked the question, why were the lives of these men like John Wycliffe and William Tyndale under threat just for wanting to translate God's word into English or into other languages, other local languages? From their perspective, why was it worth that risk, that persecution, that suffering to translate this book into the language of the common man, woman, boy and girl? What about today? Why do missionaries 
give their lives over to embedding themselves into a culture that is not their own, learning a, a new language, still plenty that are not yet in written form. Why? Why? Because this is our only hope. This is where we find the words of eternal life. This book is precious beyond rubies. And I want to show you that this evening. Now I work for a publisher in Grand Rapids. And so I'm probably guilty of this more than all of you. Because it's likely that I have dozens of Bibles in my office or in my house. I've never known a time when without much effort I've been unable to lay my hand on God's word. I wonder if that results in some complacency, some apathy, some unintended devaluing of the Bible, of the the word of God. But perhaps many of us do that in our generation because we've never experienced not having it available. So I wonder, have we lost something of the preciousness of this extraordinary supernatural book? And so this evening, I want to show you or remind you from Scripture itself about the value of this book, the blessing it is to us, the foundation that it sets for us in every area of our life, what our attitude, what our response should be to it with the overall theme being that every single word from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21 counts, matters. It's precious. Every syllable in those original languages is important. And like that young girl Mary back in Wales, each of us should value this book, treasure it, among any, above anything else that you own. That's not an exaggeration. That's not an overstatement. More valuable than anything else you own because your life and your eternity depends on the authority and sufficiency of what we find in this book. So please turn with me to Psalm 19. We read a part of that together. I just want to give you a brief background because we see that The psalmist David wrote these words like a poem under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, immediately we have to stop. We talk about that inspiration regularly. All of the scripture you hold in your hand in those original Greek and Hebrew editions is written under the influence, the guidance, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God himself. And we'll see that. And what it means. And Psalm 19 is a passage of scripture that describes God's communication with us. He's his declared revelation to us. Now, those first verses, which we didn't read, show us that declaration to us through creation. It's, it's called general or natural revelation, those first six verses. And it gives us clear evidence of of God to all men, but not yet the message of salvation. We need something else. And then in verses 7 through 9, our verses, this goes an extra step forward. This is now showing us through his word, what we call special revelation. God has chosen to reveal himself to us through nature, all the things around us, and through this book. Okay? To humanity. He's used human instruments in the writers of the scriptures, but it is his inspired word. The creator is telling his creation all about himself. In a sense, this is his autobiography. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, famous London preacher, said, He is wisest who reads both. The world book, the book of nature, and the word book as two volumes of the same work. And feels concerning them, my father wrote them both. James Montgomery Boyce said, the revelation of God in nature is glorious. Just as the visible transfiguration of Jesus and the heavenly voice were glorious. But but glorious as it is, it cannot compare to the written revelation. 
That is the most certain or more sure revelation that concerns David in the second half of this psalm. And what we find here then are a number of descriptions in the Bible about the Bible. Descriptions of this word of God followed immediately again and again by a personal application. Because this is pure, this is the reaction, this is how it should make you live. This is the truth, then the application. And David makes six statements, six parallelisms. And here we need to take each of these statements that we read in in, uh, verses 7 through 9. And we need to split our thinking this evening into three with each of them. Some suggest that each statement here points out a different aspect of Scripture and different names of Scripture. That's what we find, you see, a variety of synonyms. But at the same time, we are all the time increasing our understanding of the richness and the beauty and the effectiveness and the preciousness of Scripture. This is God's Word here. We see descriptions, the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, the fear, the ordinances. And you can see, if you look, firstly, what this Word is and who it is from. And then secondly, what attributes, what characteristics does this revealed word from God have? And thirdly, what does this then do? What what are the effects? And that's how we're going to split our thinking this evening. Three points, six parallel statements, which we can line up next to each other. All showing us the infinite and the eternal value of Scripture. So here's our first of three points. The source of Scripture. The source of Scripture. So glance down these verses, 7 through 9. And the first part of each clause as you glance down. What is this law, this testimony, the precepts, the commandments, this fear, these rules? If you follow it all the way down. See, this is speaking of God's revealed word in Scripture. Special revelation. But who is it from? Whose testimony is this? Whose rules are these? Whose precepts are these? And in the first six verses of the psalm, it refers, remember those first six verses talking about nature? It refers to God, but when you go back to the original language, it's speaking of Elohim God. It's the creator God. But when we get to verses 7 through 9, there's a change which you may not notice. What it's now saying is that this is a different name used for God. There's a switch here. That this is Yahweh God. One fact is repeated six times alongside in our three verses. The fact that this word is from the Lord, capitalized. We know 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God. The almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God breathed this out. He is the source. And this, this results in his word. This book, and it's inspired, it is inerrant, it is immovable, it is trustworthy. And this Lord that we read of here is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. And therefore, knowing his power, knowing all about him, knowing his perfection, this book, logically and obviously, must be perfect. It's error-free. It couldn't be anything else because of the source from where it comes. Reformer John Calvin tells us that the language, speaking of Scripture, is that this is one in whom there is nothing defective. That's the source. And we see the six descriptions of God's Word. In Psalm 119, if you were to look there, you, you find eight. But this isn't just vain repetition. As Matthew Henry states it, these terms, these nouns, summarize divine revelation teaches about the value of scripture so in verse 7 the law of the lord spurgeon has a, a sermon on just that phrase showing how the law can lead to conversion the law reveals our sin our need for forgiveness according to multiple sources the the law here is referring to the torah those first five books of the the bible it is Specifically referring to that. But more generally, the the commentators agree that the Hebrew word here relates to all instruction by God wherever it is found. 
Sproul says it's a general term for God's instruction. It comes from a verb, to teach, to instruct. Whatever teaching, whatever instruction comes from God falls under this category. Charles Simeon says the law of the Lord. There's a marginal translation in, in their Bible back in the 17th century. And Spurgeon had it in his Bible too. He's saying it refers to one general term. All that came afterwards as well, not just the Torah, but everything proven to come from God falls under this comprehensive title of the law of the Lord. God's revealed will. Spurgeon says this, he refers to a same, the same note in his Bible. In the margin we have the word doctrine as another rendering of the word law. And we know that the term the law of the Lord is not restricted to the Decalogue so that we shall not do wrong if we also apply this expression to the gospel. It's the whole of scripture. God's special means of converting souls to the whole revelation of God's plan, the method of salvation which we find in the scriptures. So that's the first one we have, covers everything that God teaches. Look again, the testimony of the Lord in the next clause. The perfect witness is God himself. Calvin says this word testimony is to be taken generally for the covenant, for the agreements, for the the promises of God. The promises to the children of Abraham that he would be their God. And on the other hand, they then require to show faith and obedience and follow. There's a mutual covenant here that it refers to between God and his ancient people. This is the revelation of God himself given to us in his word. It's a true, trustworthy testimony. This is the foundation that everything is trustworthy, dependable. It will hold your weight. That's the picture. It's a witness to us. It's precise. It's authoritative because of the source from which it comes. We can have confidence in it. Look again, the precepts of the Lord, the statutes. So this, yeah, it's, it's emphasis through repetition. There is some of that, but we are learning more and more about God's word as we look at each of these titles. This is beautiful prose making the point again and again. We're seeing the authority of God, the commandment of the Lord. There are commands here. This isn't just interesting information that uh, people can find in a, in a drawer in a hotel room and think, well, that's interesting. No, there are commandments here. This should change the way that you live. This should have an impact. This does not leave you passive. God's revelation through his word is transformative. It's life-giving. And then the fear of the Lord. Now that's the one that sounds a little bit strange, but really it isn't. It's another title for God's word. We're told that this fear speaks of the reverential awe for God that compels believers to worship him. Scripture, in that sense, is the divine manual on how to worship the Lord. Another title. It's a figure of speech for special revelation. Because this word produces fear, reverence for God. We need to fear him. And that will result in following his trusted instruction found in his word. And then the final description is the rules or the judgments of the Lord. Again, describing God's word. So we have six names, and we find here that we don't need anything else. You see, Almighty God, in all of his perfection, is the source of this whole Bible. He has chosen to reveal, to declare to us what we need. And therefore, it's completely reliable. In this word, it testifies about him, about the plan of salvation, And it cannot lie, Titus 1-2, in the hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began. See, nothing else would make sense because of the perfect source of this word. Hebrews 6-18, it's impossible for God to lie. Numbers 23-19, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said and will he not do it or he has spoken And will he not fulfill it? God gives us. He gives us scripture. But he doesn't just give it to us. 
Because of his perfection, because of his power, because of his attributes, we can also have full confidence that he preserves his word. Of course he would. He wouldn't allow it to be tainted in any way. Jesus speaking in John 10, 35, Scripture cannot be broken. If this book is given to us by God, it must be supreme. It must answer the most basic and most important question in life. It tells us how to be saved. It tells us how to live the Christian life. Everything we need is here. And we need full confidence in its trustworthiness. And we have that because of its author. Now, there are many other reasons we can have confidence in in Scripture. We could look at the world of apologetics and sources of manuscripts and historical events and things like that. But we're looking today at what Scripture says, what Scripture claims about itself. We can look at fulfilled prophecies, hundreds of them. We can look at the historicity of events in worldly history that we can find in museums that tie up exactly with what Scripture says. Maybe we can do that at another time. But we're looking at Scripture itself and seeing what it teaches about its own authority and the applications of that truth on our lives today. Calvin again said that the Scripture is as authoritative As if we heard God's living words from heaven with our own ears in his institutes. And so Christians should be governed by its promises, he says. And the church should be wholly subject to its authority. So that was our first point. The source of scripture. The Lord, Yahweh. And the result of applying that knowledge in part. Now we build on that with our second point. Found in those very same three verses. And our second point is this, the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. And these verses as a whole give us some of the key attributes and characteristics of God's Word. Look again, glance down the verses. It's perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true. These, These naturally flow from our knowledge about the author which we've just looked at. It could not possibly be any other way. John MacArthur says this iconic passage is the most comprehensive statement regarding the sufficiency of Scripture. That's an important phrase that we need to understand. God is all-sufficient, and His Word is all-sufficient. Naturally goes hand in hand. Don't misunderstand The Bible doesn't claim to be exhaustive on every single subject. Not to be flippant, but to make the point. It doesn't tell us anything about ice cream or iPhones. But where it speaks, it is absolutely true. It is absolutely authoritative. It is sufficient. It gives us everything we need. And the assertion relating to the sufficiency of Scripture is a very important doctrine for you to grasp and plant deeply into your mind. But I I fear a little bit that that word sufficiency has been diluted or downplayed a little bit in our day. It might lose some of its impact. What does it mean? Well, I might say I got sufficient points on my test in order to pass. Or I have had sufficient to eat. And it means enough, okay? The dictionary defines it as enough, adequate. But that only gives us part of the sense of the richness and fullness of what we mean when we relate the word sufficient to the Bible, to God's word. And this passage of scripture can clarify this for us too. There's a comparison here, a contrast with the changing, the flawed, the sinful, the impure, the wrong thinking of the world. This is the opposite that we find in Scripture. This is the antithesis of all those things. This is the issue. There are many in this world who will argue that Scripture is without error. They will even say it's unchangeable. But they are entirely happy to add to Scripture in different ways. But any of those ways 
is the seed of a fatal disease. Missionary Paul Washer said this, When someone comes to me and says that they believe in the inspiration and the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Scriptures, this is what it means to me. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing if you are not going to take one more step. And that is that the Scriptures are sufficient. They are sufficient for everything the Christian, everything the man of God, everything the church needs. They are sufficient. And if you will not take that step, if you will not take that very next step, all your words really don't matter. You are just speaking vanities into the air. What's he mean? You see, it should never be Scripture plus other things. Not Scripture plus your ideas. Not Scripture plus the traditions of the church. It is entirely sufficient. Deuteronomy 4.2 is where God is speaking to Moses. And he says, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. And we know famously in the New Testament at the end of the book of Revelation, don't we? I warn everyone who hears the, the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. We see that adding, that adding with some of the religious leaders in the Bible, they add laws to God's laws. And it doesn't end well. God is saying, do not add one thing. Do not take away one thing. And we lead our lives as Christians and followers by what is written. It's a common phrase. Not our clever ideas, not the errant ideas of man. The word does not change with the culture of the day. We do not modify the message to attract people to it. Or with the whims of our generation. That doesn't change it either. It is sufficient. Spurgeon said, If the revelation of God were not enough for our faith, what could we add to it? Who can answer this question? What would any man propose to add to the sacred word? A moment's thought, he says, would lead us to the scout, to scout with derision the most attractive words of men. If it were proposed to add them to the word of God, the fabric would not be of a piece. Would you add rags to a royal vestment? Would you pile the filth of the streets in a king's treasury? Would you join the pebbles of the seashore to the diamonds of Golconda, a place rich in diamonds in India? Scripture is sufficient. This was one of the monumental truths rediscovered during the Reformation. That famous Latin phrase, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Now, that was reasserted in the 16th century because the church had drifted away from that. They were adding things to God's revealed word. They were ignoring parts too. Roman Catholic Church adds traditions, adds the words, the teachings, the commands of all these different popes. And men like Peter Waldo and John Huss and John Wycliffe at different times, even before the Reformation, grasped hold of the truth that God's revealed word is all we need. This was God's work of revitalization in that 16th century where that seemingly small flame became a mushroom cloud. Our understanding, our faith, our thinking, our behavior, our church, our ministry should be shaped by Scripture alone. This is the most precious foundational book where God has declared his truth to us. It's not a discussion document. He's declared it. He has preserved it. One of the Reformed Confessions states it like this, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. This book shows you how to be saved. It tells us about faith and the object of that faith in Jesus Christ and we can have full confidence in it it tells us about the finished work of his on the cross and it points 
to our necessary obedience? How do we therefore live as faithful followers? And later in that same confession it says, The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. talks of everything necessary is in here. It talks of having a high and reverent esteem for these holy scriptures which we come to with a submissive attitude. Calvin and others during the Reformation came to the understanding that God must be worshipped according to his word. This next quote is older language, but stick with it. Listen to Martin Chemnitz, lesser known slightly later reformer in Germany. He said, The sacred scripture is the canon, norm, rule, foundation, and pillar of our whole faith, so that whatever is to be accepted under this title and name, that is the doctrine of Christ and of the apostles, must be proved and confirmed in Scripture. For in religious controversies, all things must be tested and examined according to this norm, in such a way that the saying of Jerome remains in force. This was his saying, Whatever does not have authority in Holy Scripture can be rejected as easily as it can be approved. See, he's saying the authority of Scripture is preeminent. And the norm for the true Christian who submits to it as the actual word of God is to be blessed eternally. This is one of the building blocks of what it means to be a Protestant. Sola Scriptura, the sufficiency of Scripture. Look at those six adjectives. Overlapping assertions, qualities, properties. We see the word perfect. This is a description of God's word. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's comprehensive completeness. Specially made for and successful in its purpose. It's wholeness. It's all-encompassing. doesn't miss anything. It's got it all covered. It couldn't be better. It's flawless. It's blameless. It's free from corruption as it stands. If we added anything or took it away, it would no longer be perfect. And then the next word, sure. Testimony of the Lord is sure. The word is in its passive form. It's firm, it means. It's confirmed. It's verified. It's proven time and time and time again. Generation after generation. It's reliable, certain, unmoving, fixed, trustworthy. It has ultimate integrity. The kind of solid foundation that you need to be standing on. It is enduring. It is faithful. It doesn't change. It's, it's steadfast. The next one, it's right. The precepts or the statutes of the Lord are right. It's a picture of straightness. This is the truth, not falsehood. This is equitable and just. It's exactly as it should be. It speaks of the morality of it. How to live on a daily basis based on God's standard. It's pure. The commandment of the Lord is pure. There's no doubt. There's no corruption. It's just. It's fair. It's right. No defilement. Psalm 12.6 The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground. Purified seven times. Clean. The fear of the Lord is clean. No error. Radiant. Then true, the rules or judgments or ordinances of the Lord are righteous and true, faithful forever, endlessly, trustworthy. Remember the source, the God of infinite wisdom, the God of all truth. That's why it's dependable. He is omniscient and omnipotent. Passage is clearly telling us of the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture, of God's Word. You know, we read an account in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, you see, evidently didn't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture when you look at that passage. After he'd been told about this uncrossable chasm, you remember the picture, and that he had no hope of relief from this torment that he was suffering from, he said in verse 27, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, 
so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. See, Abraham tells him that all he needed was Scripture. All his family, his relatives need is Scripture. Nothing else. It's perfect, trustworthy, right, radiant, pure, firm. MacArthur summarizes these traits in these verses and says, It is an inspired statement about Scripture as a qualified guide for every situation. Scripture is comprehensive, containing everything necessary for one's spiritual life. It is surer than a human experience that one may look to in proving God's power and presence. It contains all the divine principles that are the best guide for character and conduct. It's void of any flaws. It's true on all matters. It's comprehensive. It meets every need in life. What we find in the Bible is that Scripture is the supreme judge and final arbiter in any dispute. If Scripture says it, that settles it. And so we've seen the characteristics of Scripture, what it teaches about itself, what Jesus says about it. And now we come to the results. What this life-giving Word of God achieves. So we've seen the source of Scripture. We've seen the sufficiency of Scripture. And now thirdly and finally, the success of Scripture. The success of Scripture. Again, we see a six-fold pattern here. Six effects. As we look down this parallelism, you can just glance again and you can see it revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It endures forever. It is righteous altogether. Now we see the benefits, the, the effects. We see those elsewhere, don't we? It tells us in Second Timothy, passage we already looked at, that it's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for rebuke and correction and training in righteousness so that we may be complete and equipped. You see, these, these facts don't simply fill the mind they're life-changing because scripture comes from that source because scripture is sufficient it should change everything you are you should live by this it revives the soul it transforms and changes people it restores broken lives it makes wise the simple the testimony of the lord is sure making wise the simple it's true wisdom this is the true worldview that we have here presented the reality of the universe the reality of your existence this is having your eyes opened for the first time this invokes an image of a naive person who doesn't know how to to shut his mind to false or impure teaching you see he's undiscerning he's ignorant he's he's gullible but then god's word makes him wise such a man is skilled in the art of godly living one said, the word of God thus takes a simple mind with no discernment and makes it skilled in the issues of life. This, pra- this is practical. It's not just head knowledge. It says it rejoices, rejoicing the heart. Of course it does. If we understand reality, if we understand our need for God and how trusting in God brings ultimate eternal joy, that results in ultimate eternal rejoicing. Of course that rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It brings clarity. It gives light. It gives understanding and discernment and purpose and direction and hope. We know Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It endures forever. In verse 9 it says there, this truth, this perfection, this sufficiency is flawless for all eternity. Can't change. If it did, it would mean it was never perfect. We don't need edits. We don't need updates. And it says it's righteous altogether. It makes you wise. It gives joy. It gives light. It endures forever. It's, it's righteous. The fact that it is inerrant, the fact that it is sufficient, the fact that these are the very words of God means every part of your life 
must be submitted to this scripture, to this life-giving word, and you will never regret doing that. It's true. It has effects. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Even our very next verses here in Psalm 19 talk of this being more desirable than, than gold. All those things we've considered, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. You know what people will do to get gold. Do you have that same attitude to these truths that we find in Scripture? It's an amazing book. And those who obey God's commands will be rewarded. Not that we deserve it. So I remind you as we come to a close that we've seen the source of this word. We've seen the sufficiency of this word. And we see that this is absolutely successful in all that it sets out to do. All will be gathered in. All of God's people. I wonder if you've heard of the famous 18th century French Enlightenment historian and philosopher. It's called Voltaire. You know, I've, I've visited uh, Voltaire's grave in the Pantheon in Paris about 13 years ago now with my wife. And we went down into that crypt. And it was a depressing experience. Knowing his animosity towards Christianity. And there's his grave being celebrated by many. This is what he said in the 18th century. 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible in the earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. Now hold that thought. That's what Voltaire said about the Bible a hundred years from when he lived. There's a missionary register of 1836. Now a few years later from the Church Missionary Society. And there's a fascinating account of an Englishman visiting the Genevan Bible Society. In a house in Switzerland. And you can see in the notes it's all the boring business kind of dealings talking about in these meetings. But in a particular conversation, they were talking about printing 10,000 copies of the Bible in French. And then the book goes on to say this. Before I left Geneva, my friend observed, probably you would like to see the house where Voltaire lived and where he wrote his plays. Prompted by the spirit of curiosity, so characteristic of an Englishman, to visit the house of this celebrated infidel, I was about to put on my hat and walk out into the country when he said, it is not necessary you should put on your hat. And he introduced me over the threshold of one room to another and said, this is the room where Voltaire's plays were acted for the amusement of himself and his friends. And what was my gratification in observing that the room had been converted into a sort of repository for Bibles and religious tracts? book goes on to say that Voltaire claimed to be living in what he termed the twilight of Christianity. But blessed be God, it was the twilight of the morning, not the evening. Daybreak is coming. The man who said the Bible would be dead in a hundred years had a Bible society living in his home a hundred years later. Same happened actually in Albania. The first declared atheistic nation and the prime minister who declared that less than a hundred years after his death had a Bible society to Albania running out of his house. You see, this scripture cannot be stopped. God preserves it. God uses it. This is life-giving. These are not just intellectual thoughts. The source of this scripture, the sufficiency of this scripture, and the success of this scripture is deeply personal. God is still saving people today. God is still filling people and strengthening people through his word today as we progress towards the celestial city. Matthew 4.4, 4, Jesus answering the devil with scripture says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, every word that comes from the mouth of God. Listen carefully. The Bible does not contain God's word. The Bible is God's word. Every single word. Every word counts. You should treasure this precious book. Not in some hypothetical way. 
It's addressing you. It's challenging you. Are you right with the God of this book? Was the sacrificial atoning death described in this book that happened in actual history? Was that for you? Was that paying the actual price of your sin as Christ died on the cross? Which of the eternal destinies described in this book are you on? Do you see the value? Does it impact you? Does it move you at all? It's described in many ways. One writer puts it like this, to help us grasp how powerful Scripture is. The biblical writers say it's like fire. To express how penetrating it is, they describe it as being sharper than any double-edged sword. To describe, to explain how vital it is for life, they speak of it as bread and milk, food and water. To show how necessary it is for seeing clearly, they speak of it as light and as a mirror. To communicate how much we need it, If we're to be secure and grounded, it's spoken of as an anchor and as a rock. To underline how valuable it is, they speak of it being more precious than a thousand pieces of silver and gold. To convey the fact that it creates life, it is spoken of as being like a seed. And when it is described how satisfying it is, God's word describes itself as being sweeter than the very sweetest honey. That's the book you hold in your hands. As a believer, you must be committed to studying these truths and being hungry to hear from your Father God and then applying what you find. This is transformative to your life, to your family, to your church. Can you find justification for how you live in the Scriptures, for how you worship in the Scriptures? That's the bedrock. That's the deciding factor. That has the final word. And Satan tries to undermine these truths and put doubts in our minds. Any hint, one single grain of doubt over this book is deadly, is terminal. Any additional subtraction from it is absolutely unnecessary. It's dangerous. It's it's wrong. It's forbidden. We need nothing more. We need to submit to this. Every word counts. We can declare when we look at this, thus saith the Lord. And if God says it, we listen, we obey the whole thing. We have entrusted, we have been entrusted with the truth of God that we are to take out to the world. All our wisdom is contained in the scriptures. And now we have the full revelation of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus himself says that all these scriptures testify or witness about me. Talks about the sacred writings. Refers to itself as scripture. Refers to itself as authoritative. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that what he's writing is from God. 1 Thessalonians 2, that this is the word of God. 2 Peter 3 talks about the letters of Paul being the scriptures from God. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. This is an all-sufficient and unified scripture. And an all-sufficient saviour. You can trust this book. You can stake your life and eternity on it. It cannot fail. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. In the psalm before us. Spurgeon states categorically, As for us, we cast anchor in the haven of the word of God. Here is our peace, our strength, our life, our motive, our hope. Our happiness. God's word is our ultimatum. Here we have it. Our understanding cries, I have found it. Our conscience asserts that here is the truth. And our hearts find, 
here a support to which all her affections can cling, and hence we can rest content. Is that true of you? Do you have full assurance in this word? Do you have full confidence in your salvation because of what we find here? We can't rejoice in the simplest of Sunday school songs without trusting his word. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Your view of scripture, your understanding of the source, God himself, your confidence in the sufficiency, your commitment to the success of this word in your life and in the extension of the kingdom of God until Jesus returns. All of it's non-negotiable. You can't live without this. No other understanding of the authority of God's word has any other value, will hold any water, makes any sense. It's all true. It's all right. It's the gift of God to us for our good. Oh, brothers and sisters, hold it close to your heart. Hold it in your heart. This has everything you need right here. Read it. Absorb it. Apply it. Love it. Love the God of it. Follow him. These are the words of eternal life. We can look nowhere else. Your hope is resting in the fact that every single word is from above. Scripture is entirely sufficient. Every word counts. You can trust this. You can rest your eternity on this. And I encourage you to do that this evening. Let's pray together. Almighty, eternal God, how we thank you for the life-giving words that we find in Scripture. How we thank you that we can trust every single word of it. Lord, we pray that you will increase our faith, that you will increase our confidence. And Lord, we cry out to you for any here this evening who do not know you, who do not know the God of this book, that an eternal work of salvation would be done in a heart even now and that there would be rejoicing in heaven over a sinner saved Lord we're so thankful for your goodness to us and for providing us with this book with this plan of redemption absolute perfection absolute certainty help us Lord to live in the light of that we pray in Jesus name Amen